Hey, everybody, welcome back as we close out the week in First Timothy, Clo- close to closing out the book. We'll probably get through, uh, we may get through this book at the end of next week, but we'll see how that goes. Today, um, coming off kind of a kind of a, a rough, a speed bump yesterday, some uh, difficult texts conceptually, um, sociologically. We move back to, I would say, closer to the core of this book, um, and we get, we really get kind of a, we close the week with a kind of double barrel dose of Paul. Uh, Paul, Paul has, you know, he's a strong leader. Um, he's an outspoken leader. He's talking to Timothy, but keep in mind that Paul undoubtedly knows this letter will be shared. It will be read in the church. I, I think he, he anticipates that. He may even uh, be using that idea, to be honest. So l- let me jump in here where at the very the tail end of verse two, which is really kind of part of verse three, but um, we'll go from there. So teach and urge these duties. Whoever teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching in accordance with godliness is conceited, understanding nothing, and has a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words. From these come envy, dissension, slander, base suspicion, and wrangling among those who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So, uh, you, you know, pretty hard to miss the fact that you've changed tone at that point. <laughs> uh, Paul, Paul tells Timothy, you know, I want you to... I want you to teach these. And and remember, I, I do think these are public words. These are not exclusive to Paul and Timothy's conversation. This is going to be in the broader context of the church. And, and you have to kind of imagine it that way. Whoever teaches otherwise, that, that's essentially the summary here. Not who, whoever doesn't agree with the words of the Lord Jesus and by implication, the teachings I've just laid out for you is conceited. Um, they, they are arrogant. And they understand nothing, and they have a morbid craving for controversy and dissension and dispute about words. So I, I don't know what to say about these words, Michael. I mean, Paul is he, he's he's certainly keeping nothing back here. He's he's not there's nothing you need to decode in this. He's just saying, look, if you don't like it, and if you're causing trouble. And if you're teaching other things that aren't what I've just told you, you're conceited, you understand nothing, and you're just trying to stir the pot, which is not in keeping with trying to be the church. Pretty pretty sharp edge. Yeah, you made the case, and I, I think it's worth noting at the early part of this conversation, it may seem to us like this is almost a schizophrenic turn in the text. It probably strikes us as coming from nowhere. If that's the case then I would advise that maybe it would do us all well to slow down and to consider where we've been because I I think actually this very much fits the general thread that's been woven throughout this book. There has been a lot of critique levied in this book, even in the encouragement of Timothy, and I think we pointed out at different turns that even in encouraging Timothy, there is a form of critique against the opponent that is assumed in that, 
And here, you know, following that day when we had talked about uh, social interaction and we, we talked about the difficulty in a contemporary reading of uh, uh, the instruction given to slaves. But here we suddenly have now continuing that kind of where the rubber meets the road conversation, very practical application. Paul then turns right here to say, if you are going to teach words uh, that are not the sound words of the gospel, if you're going to, and this should bring back to mind that conversation about those sort of vain wonderings, uh, or he also calls them those uh, those practices that are restricted, overly restrictive kinds of beliefs. If those things are the things being taught, then that is conceit. It understands nothing. It has a morbid craving for controversy. Uh, now, yes, Clint, I, I do think there's a kind of bite to it. On the flip side, we all have had an experience of someone who was using words and they were destructive. I, a person, you know, may, we probably wouldn't use the word uh, morbid craving for controversy, but there are times when people take it too far and they begin to say and teach things that not only divide the community, but in some cases they, they really do harm to people. And when that happens, uh, you know, Paul makes it clear that is a point to achieve correction. It, it's a time to separate, to distinguish. Clearly, that requires wisdom, um, but I, I just want to make the case here that I do think while it may seem that this is abrupt, I, I think one can make a case it does fit a general tone that we've seen throughout. Yeah, and I would say even in a maybe a, a broader sense, Michael, you can read these words and think of Paul as coming off a little arrogant himself, may, maybe coming on too strong. There's no doubt that Paul is a strong leader. He's an outspoken leader. Um, however, what's really interesting is when you compare these kind of words with other things, you know, we've seen even in this study other places where Paul says, look, stop, stop fussing at each other about rules, treat each other kindly, um, take care of the weaker brother or the weaker sister. There have been just as many times in Paul's writings where he's taken a pastoral tone. Um, what really seems to set Paul off is the idea of causing conflict and division within the body. Um, Paul often reserves his harshest criticisms for those who make the faith harder for others, who teach circumcision, who, who have this idea that they know the truth and that they want to add rules and burdens to people. And that, that just gets under Paul's skin in a way that nothing else really seems to do. And so, yes, Paul. If, if this is all you read of Paul, you would wonder, what do I make of this guy? But I think when you balance this with other things, you have to kind of admire a, a leader. There is a danger in being a leader who won't stand up to those who are causing issues. At, at some point, leadership will demand a difficult conversation with a difficult person and when we as leaders or when we as, you know, family members, whatever, avoid that long enough, we actually make it worse and not better. And so, you know, then he continues here. When you do this, that's when you get envy, dissension, slander, suspicion, and wrangling among those who are depraved. 
and bereft of truth. And this last bit about they imagine godliness as a means of gain. In other words, they're in this for what is good for them, either notoriety or perhaps even um, wealth, the acquisition of stuff. You know, these are harsh words. And unfortunately, Michael, history's not short on examples of people who have used the church for their personal gain. And um, I, I suspect when they have to answer for that, they're, you know, it, it's not going to be good. And, and Paul is prefiguring that, I think, to some extent. Yeah. In fact, I think the point that you were making about Paul uh, maybe coming across strongly in a section like this is in some ways fleshed out in this very exact phrase imagining that godliness is a means of gain makes it clear that the opponents in Paul's view are pursuing this form of teaching uh, and they are reaching towards this end not for the sake of the other, not with the other's best interest in mind, not out of a servant's heart, not with humility, but rather at the core with self at the center. That is Paul's shortcut to anger. I mean, Paul has a very short half-life between recognizing that kind of self-centered reality and uh, then quickly turning to the denunciation of that. He sees that as antithetical to the gospel itself. Yeah, not to jump on top of you there, Michael, but because for Paul, if we are at the center, who isn't? Right? Then it's not about Jesus. If right. it's about me as a leader and not about Christ— and I lead as a follower, then for Paul, the ship is sinking. Yeah. And, and yeah, that pushes his buttons in a big way. That said, uh, you know, I don't think for most of us uh, we should take literal um, sort of advice from Paul and start going around calling people depraved of mind and bereft of the truth. That's probably not the uh, way to start off a coffee conversation, right? But seriously, I, I do think we we must be careful with the ideas that we allow to dominate our attention. That was true in Paul's day as the church wrestled with some of the practices of what it means to be a Gentile while also a Christian. That also applies today. It, it really, as we consume the news on television, when we consume our friends' lives on our devices, when, when we get our ideas from such a variety of sources, some of those, if we're honest, we don't even know where they come from. I do think we today also as Christians should be very vigilant in what we allow into our life. In the same way that a person who cares about their health is careful about what they eat, I think the ideas and the thoughts and the time that we spend engaging with substantial matters should be measured with some discernment uh, because we might easily find ourselves on the other side of this line and, and numbered with those who Paul would say are ultimately serving their own ends as opposed to the ends of the body. And no Christian wants to be there. And, and there is a warning, I think, even in our present time to be careful about what we allow in uh, through that gate. Yeah, and there may be a temptation for Paul to come on even stronger than normal because he's doing this from a distance. You know, he's he's addressing this danger to the community without being there. And if he were there, I suspect he could 
you know, narrow his comments to the particular people. He would take them aside. He would rebuke them. He would instruct them. He would correct them, whatever that may be. But he's now trying to do that through Timothy. And whatever is happening is already entrenched. It's not just a danger. This is something that is going on. And that makes it more difficult on Paul's end because he has to now root it out. He can't prevent it anymore. He has to fix it. And that's always more difficult. It it is always to squash. It is easier to squash something before it gets established. But that's not the case in this community. Whatever is there is already there. And so Paul has to kind of try to, to root it out and get rid of it. And he has to do that from second chair with Timothy really being the point person and Paul being the person giving advice. And so um, I, I think he wants to make it very clear how he feels about this situation to try and put Timothy in a position of succeeding. At least that's that's how I read it. It's very tempting, uh, both in the early church and as it is today, both for life Christians as well as for uh, ordained Christian leaders uh, to pursue our faith in such a way that points back to us. And I think Paul's very encouraging word that comes here in verse 6, of course, there's great gain in godliness combined with contentment, is an incredibly contemporary word for the church. That uh, whenever you have a church leader in particular, maybe the easiest example, who is driven by the idea of numbers or success or influence, uh, or charisma, or whatever that might be for the individual, great harm can be done very quickly uh, for the sake of the church when a person is driven by that inner need, a, a kind of instability, a desire to reach or to grab. I, I think there is deep levels of wisdom beyond what we're going to be able to really unearth in a conversation like this in that idea that godliness must be combined with contentment, that if we find ourselves never content, it's likely we're not living in the kind of godliness we've been called to. And that is particularly prescient, that's particularly important uh, in the midst of a congregation where the leadership Paul has identified and is now clearly saying is reaching for ends other than for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel. And when that selfishness is called out, Paul says the the only metric by which one can see health is the measure of that godliness, that at, that right Christian character combined with a kind of contentment that only comes with being in Christ and living that out faithfully in the Christian community. Yeah, I think the last word that I would add there, Michael, is if we notice the movement from the morbid craving and disputes about words, these are really pointed at an individual. And then if you see the next sentence, from those come envy, dissension, slander. Those are intended for the community. So what what one person contributes can have a negative impact on the broader group. And, And I think this is the danger. This is why for Paul... It, it is certainly a matter of right and wrong. It is certainly a matter of theology. But but in its simplest form, it's also a matter of math. You have one or two people threatening the faith of dozens of people, hundreds of people, however, whatever that number might be. And And Paul, whatever else we could say about him, Paul is certainly aware of the impact that one person 
trying to grab leadership for the wrong reasons, teaching the wrong things in the wrong way can have on the church. A ton of damage has been and can be done by false leaders who are about themselves. Um, We've all seen it in churches. Some of us have lived through it in church communities. And when it happens, it is majorly destructive. And if I, I think to Paul's credit, if that means he has to step on some toes and offend some people by being a little rough around the edges, then so be it. That's what he's going to do. If he needs to swing a sledgehammer, he's going to do that in order to try and protect the community from those kind of influences. And um, it comes across strong, but really, I think it's passion. Yeah, it's passion. It's an awareness of what's at stake. Yeah. And, you know, that may strike us as uh, of high amplitude, if you let me say that. It may It may seem very intense, but that should, I think, bring with it a kind of critique of our own temptation to make church a place that always feels comfortable and, and that where we want to go and be with friends and be affirmed. I mean, these are good things, and, and a church should do these things, but Clint, I, I think it's also important that we recognize that our church community must also be a place that challenges those things that would allow us to continue our life living as if we didn't need a savior. And here we have leaders in the church who are teaching things to the body that would lead it to believe that there are things that they need to do which will result in either the advancement of their salvation or maybe even the achievement of their salvation. It, you know, We don't know the subtleties of the arguments at hand. What we do know is that Paul has no time for those who take Jesus Christ out of center seat. So if I have a concluding word here, it's, you know, for us, that's the question that comes back to each of us. You may not count yourself a leader. Maybe that's a term you wouldn't use, whether you should or not. But every single one of us is responsible for Jesus Christ being at the center. And uh, in any way that we might entertain ideas or patterns or habits that revoke or reject or do not accept that, we are going to find ourselves outside the circle of grace that Paul believes is the lifeblood of the Christian faith. It's a measure of freedom and wholeness, not, not a kind of rejection of just, you know, all of the things that you should do. It's not a list of moralisms. But for Paul, this is the center. And if we believe that the center is being rejected and say nothing, then we don't truly understand the depth and importance of that center. Yeah, I I think we would be in error if we read these words as permission for us to talk this way to people we don't agree with. That's, That's not what's happening here. Paul knows that these people teaching something other than the gospel are dangerous to the church, and as such, he has to pull the rug out from under them. He has to have the community know that they are dangerous. He has to expose their motives, and he has to level these charges at them in a way that the rest of the community will um, see and therefore have um, it, it will have an undermining effect on the influence and power of those people. This is not a, a, a pattern for the way the rest of us talk to each other when we don't get along, you know, when we see things differently. That's not 
that's not what's happening here. Paul is going after what he understands to be a deep threat, and he's doing it publicly so the church can be in on the conversation. And, and I think ultimately that's what's happening in the passage. It's a good conclusion. We want to thank you for joining us today for this conversation. If you haven't already, check out the new series that we just kicked off today, literally just released, called Stuff That Bugs Pastors. Uh, we promise it's not just us complaining. We hope you'll check it out and hope that if you find it interesting, you'll share it. But friends, have a great weekend, and we look forward to seeing you next week as we kick off our study and finish the first book of Timothy. Yeah, and just a word along those lines. We've not heard, to my knowledge, from anybody with suggestions of where we go from here. So if we don't hear, we'll, we'll probably move into 2 Timothy. Um, if you have ideas of something else, just please let us know so we can have the conversation. Thank you.